They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Just a few short months after saying he did not think the COVID vaccine should be mandatory, President Biden is now forcing mass vaccinations for millions of Americans in order just to keep their jobs and including strict new measures on private businesses. Here is the president yesterday announcing his sweeping action. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. We'll be requiring vaccinations at all nursing home workers. Tonight, I'm using that same authority to expand that to cover those who work in hospitals, home health care facilities, or other medical facilities. A total of 17 million health care workers. And I've signed another executive order that will require federal contractors to do the same. The vaccine requirements in my plan will affect about 100 million Americans, two-thirds of all workers. That will require all of nearly 300,000 educators in the federal head paid program, Head Start program, must be vaccinated as well. I'm calling on all governors to require vaccination for all teachers and staff. These governors won't help us beat the pandemic. I'll use my power as president to get them out of the way. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. Okay, Daddy. I mean, that's really how he sounds, right? Remember those days? My patience is wearing thin. Your behavior is costing everyone in this family, except he's not our daddy. And there are limits to what a president can do. He's not a king. The Constitution was designed to make sure he would not be. He's threatening the governors. Uh, he's going to use his power as president to get them out of the way. What is what does that mean? <laughs> Sorry to break it to you, um, King Joe, but you don't have the power to get governors out of the way. Um, and so there's already a battle unfolding like that between DeSantis down in Florida and um, between President Biden. And he is trying to get Governor DeSantis out of the way because he's trying to allow vaccine mandates at the school district level that DeSantis is trying to stop. DeSantis said, I'm going to defund the school board members uh, who, you know, issue vaccine mandates that I've said are un unlawful. And Biden's saying, well, I'm going to refund. I'm going to give that money back to those school boards. Whose money is that? How's he going to do that? None of that is clear. Uh, here's the sad truth. Uh, there is precedence for allowing vaccine mandates. And unfortunately, uh, there's precedent for federal and state laws to allow private businesses to require vaccines. Um, vaccine mandates today are imposed 
uh, by states. And the courts so far have found that they're okay. That's that's how it's gone so far. Now, that doesn't mean that every single vaccine mandate is going to be okay. Uh, Typically, they get upheld because states have the ability to regulate the health and safety of their citizens. That's why the state can issue mandates, though typically not the feds. They don't have police power over us. Uh, And there have been cases in the past. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, that's in the middle of the country. Um, They recently found that there is no fundamental right to refuse a vaccine. How about that? There's no fundamental right to refuse a vaccine. Um, That's kind of (laughs) scary. So what? We're at a point where the government can hold you down and stick the needle in your arm because you don't have a right to say no. All right. Joining me now is Alan Dershowitz, professor emeritus at Harvard Law School. Alan, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you for being here. So is this lawful? Is this constitutional? There are three uh, independent issues. One, is this something the federal government can mandate as distinguished from the state government? Is there a federal police power that overcomes the state police power? That's number one. Number two, if the federal government can do it, can they issue such a broad mandate? Can they make people take a vaccine as a condition to working? And third, if the federal government can do it, and this is the most important one, is it in the hands of the president, the executive branch, as distinguished from the legislative branch? In my new book, The Case for um, Vaccine Mandates, I argue, yes, the federal government can do it because it crosses state borders, but no, probably the president cannot do it except in the event of a dire emergency. Now, this is a problem that's lasted for a long time. There's a 75-day window of opportunity, so it's going to be hard to justify it as an emergency. This should have been left to the legislature. Congress should pass this mandate, not the president. But the president has been expanding powers. President Trump did it. President Obama did it. President Mm. Biden has done it. It's not what the Constitution intended. They intended laws to be made by the legislature and then enforced by the executive. Yes, he really sounded like a king yesterday. Our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost us. These governors won't help. I I will get them out of the way. Well, how are you getting rid of the governor of Florida? How are you going to do that? No, it's it's uh, you know, there's there's room for a bully pulpit. I commend the president for urging people to get vaccinated. They should get vaccinated unless they have medical conditions. But you can't get rid of the governor. Uh, this thing is going to be litigated up because already there are lawsuits that are being filed. And I don't think anybody knows how the Supreme Court is going to resolve any of those three issues, state versus federal. Does the federal government have the power to do it? And if so, does the president, as distinguished from the legislature, have the power to do it? I suspect that this court's going to say that not the president, but the legislature, and that they can't sustain the constitutionality of 100 million people being mandated to be vaccinated without legislative authority. That's Mm -hmm. my If If it's lawful for the president to do this, we've got to be asking ourselves why, you know, back to the we didn't want a king. We fought a whole war so that we wouldn't have one. How could it be with a stroke of his pen? He changes life for 100 million people without it being approved, especially when Alan in December. In December, he said he wouldn't yep. support mandatory vaccines. Um, Walensky, chief of the CDC, she said on July 30th, there will be no federal mandate. Jen Psaki, end of July, our role is not to place blame and right. so on. So all along, they've been saying this is not the way we're going. 
Well, and, and, and Vice President said, uh, if, uh, you know, if Congress makes me do it, I'll do it. But if President Trump says I'm going to do it, I'm not going to do it. You can't have rules that say it's good for one president, not for another. Look, there's been an expansion of federal power from the New Deal on. You know, president Roosevelt locked up 100,000 American citizens uh, without congressional, explicit congressional authorization. Um, we're still in a state of emergency for the Korean War. Uh, there's too much executive power. It's a republic if we can keep it, said Benjamin Franklin. And that means legislative authority. So what I would hope would be done now is let Biden go to Congress. Let's ask the House to pass something like this. Let's have hearings. Let's have medical experts. Let's have legislation. The president can then sign the legislation. Then he would have much, much, much clearer authority to do what he's done. It's a good thing to be vaccinated, but not in violation of the Constitution. Yeah, I would. I like vaccines. I'm not against vaccine. I got vaccinated, but I, I get uncomfortable with Joe Biden telling everyone in America that they have to see it the way he does or be fired. I mean, that's what's crazy is that these people are going to lose their jobs um, potentially if they don't get the vaccine. I guess the weekly testing, could that save it? Because he says that you must be vaccinated. He's basically directing the employers, not the individual, saying the employers have to make sure everyone's vaccinated or offer weekly testing, make sure that they have weekly testing. Could that save it? That could save it uh, on on the second issue. And that is, does the federal government have the power to do this? And the courts have already said in the Indiana case, as long as there are some exceptions and as long as it's not an absolute categorical mandate, but it's still the question is still raised whether it's the president. You know, presidents shouldn't be making exceptions and and having rubrics in the rules. That's what legislation does. Legislation says you have to have tests or else maybe testing or, you know, 75 days. That's lawmaking. That's not administering the laws. That's making the laws. And that's a problem. And I suspect here I'm predicting what the courts will do as an expert, not as somebody who has strong personal views in favor of vaccination. I think the courts will be suspicious of presidential actions in the name of an emergency for an enduring problem that has existed since the first day of the Biden presidency and probably will exist in the last day, whether Mm -hmm. it's a four year or eight year term. So this is not a classic emergency where something has to be done quickly without legislative action. And at quote, an emergency during which he already said he's not going to mandate vaccines and that they wouldn't be doing that. So they said that as recently well, as July. Delta was here, but Delta was here during July. It's not like, oh, well, the next variant, you know, it unleashed hell on America and therefore none of his earlier promises stand. He recognized in the middle of Delta, it, it wasn't an emergency that would justify a mandatory vaccine. Look, that's a point. But I appreciate the fact that people change their minds with the new science. You're right. There's no real new science on this. But the best science now is that COVID will endure for us as an epidemic, not as a not as a pandemic, Mm. uh, much like flu. And so the idea of giving the president emergency authority to do something to 100 million Americans, I mean, a very large part of the workforce in America without legislative authority, raises questions of democratic accountability. So what would you do, Alan, if you got a call from the governor of Montana and the governor of Montana has a law making it illegal for private employers to require the vaccine as a condition of employment? And so he's already come out and said the president's order is unlawful in Montana. It goes directly against state law. 
how does that well, play out? The supremacy, clause, the supremacy clause of the Constitution obviously makes federal law superior to state law when the federal government has the authority to do it. And the question is, not only does the federal government have the right to preempt state law here, which I think it probably does, but does the president, as distinguished from the legislature, have that authority? And that's a much, much more difficult question, particularly for this Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. That is much shakier ground for yep. this president to be to be on. So how do you see this getting resolved? People, individual employers, individual citizens will file lawsuits against. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Against well, we'll see individual citizens. We'll see employers. We'll see states uh, and probably expedited appeal to the United States Supreme Court. I suspect we'll be getting some decisions within the next month. How does this court sitting now like uh, overreaches on executive th- authority? They don't. And uh, I think that we have a very divided court uh, and, and we don't know how the chief justice will would rule on a case like this. So it's it's up in the air. Look, I think what Biden has done, he did this with the housing uh, rental moratorium and he's done it here. What he's saying, and I think he's being advised by some people, look, do it. And if it's unconstitutional, the courts will strike it down. But at least in the meantime, We've gotten the results we wanted. I think that's what he's doing. And the Constitution, the president takes an oath to support it. Legislatures do. Members of the executive do. You can't just willy-nilly violate the Constitution and, and then say, we'll just leave it to the courts. Every single actor in government has to comply with their constitutional obligations. And I'm sure he's gotten good advice from Merrick Garland, from the Justice Department, but I suspect the courts are not going to answer those three questions all yes, yes, yes. I think maybe two will say yes. Maybe the third, it'll be sent back. But it's going to be a picnic for lawyers. I can tell mm-hmm. you a lot of lawyers are going to be very busy on this because it raises very considerable constitutional issues. Oliver Wendell Holmes said it a long time ago, hard cases make bad law. And yep. uh, this is a hard case. And thus far, it's made some bad law. You made a great point uh, about how he has an independent obligation per- pursuant to his oath to uphold the Constitution. It's not all about, ah, screw the law. You know, the courts will figure this out later. He has an independent obligation as our president, as a man who took that oath on the Bible and so on. And you're right. Twice now, at least he's flouted it. Alan, great to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Well, my, ne- my next guest is my pal from uh, the Kelly file days. His name is Shannon Coffin, and he served in senior legal positions in the Department of Justice. He was also general counsel to former Vice President Dick Cheney, and uh, he's been a trusted legal advisor on everything complex to me for many, many years. Shannon, thanks for being here and sorry for the technical difficulties. So what do you make of it? Do you think this is lawful? There's a lot to unpack there, as Professor Dershowitz suggested. I think that uh, there are serious questions that are ultimately going to have to be worked out by the Supreme Court and how they come down, you know, is really anyone's guess right now. But you start with a couple propositions. States could do this, at least under existing law. Since 1905, you know, states and and localities have had the power to require vaccination. It came up in the smallpox context 100 years ago. 
So the question is, can the federal government do it? And that's a much different question because states have a general police power. The, the, the federal government does not have a general police power. So it has to be under one of the enumerated powers of the Constitution. Now, and wait, wait, let me the, pause you there and just ask a quick question. Is the fact that states can do it, is that why my schools every year have been able to require me to provide proof of the MMR vaccine in my kids? That's absolutely right. That's where that's where that's coming from, that the states have the power to protect the general health. Now, does the federal government have that power? No, it has to have some tie to interstate commerce or some other some other relationship to federal powers. Does the president alone have that power? Absolutely not. So he can't he couldn't have and it would have raised a huge constitutional problem if he just said everyone has to get vaccinated. So he didn't do that. He's saying, I'm going to do this 80 million people at a time. So what mm-hmm. he, what he's doing is let's go through the workplace. The the Occupational Safety and Health Administration is a Department of Labor organization, a Department of Labor agency, and it has power to make uh, workplace safety and health rules. Yeah, they're the ones who come through. If your machinery is falling apart, it might fall on the employees. They cite the business and they pay a fine or they get in trouble. So he's using OSHA somehow to make this happen. How's he doing that? Well, first of all, the biggest point in that, this isn't a workplace problem, Megan. I mean, you're not hearing COVID is a significant workplace problem. Right. COVID is a significant societal problem. So the president's trying to solve a general societal problem with a law that deals with the workplace. Now, OSHA has the power to make standards for the workplace to make to make the workplace safer and more healthy. And this is where, Megan, this is where you learn that the federal government has massive powers. Mm-hmm. And and the powers of the of the under the statutory powers of OSHA are just anything it thinks reasonable or appropriate for workplace safety. Well, that could capture this, but good God, this is unlike anything it's ever done before. Now, the other thing they want to do is cram it down immediately, go forego any public comment and and just get this effective right away. Well, Congress has said to OSHA, you can only do that when there is a grave danger. And a grave danger is really quite a stretch here. What the president is saying is, I got to protect unvaccinated people. I got to protect vaccinated people from unvaccinated people. But in the same breath, he said, only one in 160,000 vaccinated people have ended up in the hospital. Right. Now, how's that? Grave danger in the, especially in the workplace. So Professor Dershowitz has talked about this in constitutional terms. The, the first question is: Can Congress give this massive power to to OSHA to make to make whatever rules it wants, right? Without with very little standards. I got to tell you, under existing law, there's there's every suggestion that it can because there, there there's such a wide open deferential standard about what Congress can delegate to a federal agency, but some of the conservatives on the Supreme Court have gotten doubtful about this whole doctrine, which is called the non-delegation doctrine, and and are starting to raise questions about it. Will they raise questions about OSHA's general power here? Quite possibly, but even if you look at, even if you set that aside and look at the statute and what Congress has said the agency can do, is this really reasonably necessary to a safe workplace? Well, this is, a, again, this is a societal problem. We're not having outbreaks in workplaces as far as 
as far as the evidence shows. Well, and can, know, can I ask you about that? So I raised this when I was when I was talking at the top of the hour without you guys. Um, what about natural immunity? I all those people who have had covid who have natural immunity and by some studies, the latest one, I think, showed it's greater than in at least one study, a legitimate study. They showed it's greater than you'd get with the vaccine. But the administration continues to ignore that fact. They don't want to talk about it. The CDC doesn't want to talk about it. Can't those people file a lawsuit, as we saw one college professor just do against his university is trying to make him get a vaccine, even though he's had covid and say, you can't. There is no emergency when it comes to me. I I I don't need the vaccine. You can't make me get a medication I don't need. Megan, you never left Jones Day. Um, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly what this lawsuit would look like. The, the individual who has natural immunity would say, you know, there's no emergency as to me. And you shouldn't have crammed this down. This is the very sort of factor you should have considered in public notice and public comment. You should give the public an opportunity to vet these issues and respond to them. But you're just cramming this down under an emergency rule when there is no grave danger. I think that's where the real the real uh, vulnerability of, of this whole thing is, mm. is this emergency cram down nature. Of this. Okay. And, I, and so just to round up and, and make it clear. So when you're dealing with an administrative agency like OSHA, uh, we saw this even with the Department of Education when they tried to change the rules for trying sexual harassment cases and assault cases. When you're dealing with an administrative agency, you need to allow public comment on rule changes. The public gets to weigh in and potentially stop it. And they didn't do that. Only in sweeping emergency cases can the chief executive, the president, and say, no, 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 we're not doing any of that. I've got these superpowers when it comes to national emergencies, you know, ma massive dangers that I can skip that. And you're saying it doesn't look like he does in this circumstance. And it and they may get challenged on on skipping the rule and the comment and all that stuff, too. That, that's right. But skipping the rule and the comment is a way to shut down the whole thing, because a court would come in and say, you didn't do it right. You don't have the power to do this in an emergency rule. Start over. And so so the rule could be enjoined. The 80 million person workplace rule could be enjoined on that basis alone. Well, and that may very well happen because, you know, Alan's right about one thing. The lawyers are sharpening their pencils right now. Our pal Jeremy Boring, who runs the Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro, already tweeted out, we have well over 100 employees and there's no way we're complying with this unconstitutional order. And so one by one, the lawsuits will pop up. The lower courts will rule. And I think it's 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 guaranteed that the Supreme Court's going to get asked to decide this and soon because you're talking about jabs in people's arms and medication and public health. Shannon, such a pleasure. Thank you, sir. See you, Megan. Uh, so up next, we're going to talk about 9-11, uh, the 20 year anniversary tomorrow. And some teachers are being told not to teach students about American exceptionalism as we approach the 9-11 moment, the 20 year uh, moment. Do not call the hijackers terrorists, they've told these teachers. Don't even have students condemn the attacks. Deborah Burlingame, I respect her so much. She lost her brother when his plane, he was the captain, hit the Pentagon. She's here to respond. And later, I want to hear from you on Biden's decision. Are you a private business owner or a worker affected by this decision? What do you plan to do about it? What do you think of it? Call me at 
Megan, M-E-G-Y-N. That's 833-446-3496. We're going to be taking calls in about an hour. Just want to let you know that's when we're going to be taking them, but would love for you to line up and call us and uh, we'll chat next time. Attention. If you owe the IRS, this is an important announcement. COVID relief is over and the IRS is ramping up like never before, sending out millions of collection letters to start 2024. Do you owe $10,000 or more or have unfiled returns? Now is the time to act. The IRS can garnish your wages, seize your property, and they can even take your home or your business. Don't let the IRS take advantage of you. It's time to call Tax Network USA. Their team of experienced tax lawyers has already saved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients. They know how to negotiate with the IRS and can help you too. Visit TNUSA.com or call 1-800-245-6000. Again, that's 1-800-245-6000. Don't wait until it's too late. Take control of your tax situation today with Tax Network USA. 1-800-245-6000. Call now. You're cruising down the highway. Windows rolled down. Tunes blasting from the radio. You're in the zone and living the dream. Suddenly, your car sputters, coughs, and throws a wrench in your whole day. Tow trucks, repair bills, the dream turns into a nightmare. Don't wait until car trouble steals your peace of mind. Visit CarShield now at carshield.com carlson. For nearly 20 years, CarShield has helped millions of drivers avoid the stress of major repairs. They offer plans covering up to 5,000 parts and systems, from your engine and transmission to electronics and more all for a low monthly rate that fits your budget. CarShield plans also include unlimited miles, 24-7 roadside assistance, and rental options. Get peace of mind now. Visit CarShield online at carshield.com carlson. Join millions of customers and contact CarShield now to save 20%. Visit carshield.com carlson. That's carshield.com carlson. Visit now. Welcome back, everyone, to The Megan Kelly Show. Joining me now is Deborah Burlingame, one of the activists who's dedicated the last 20 years to keeping the memories of those lost on 9-11 alive. Her brother, Captain Charles Burlingame, Chick, as he was known, was pilot of Flight 77, which crashed into the Pentagon building. As we approach the 20th anniversary of the deadly attacks tomorrow, we are faced with new dangers now from Afghanistan after the country fell to the Taliban and we walked away. This is the Department of Homeland Security has issued a nationwide heightened threat environment for the coming days. Deborah has a lot to say about the recent events unfolding in the Middle East and what could potentially uh, what it all could mean for our country. And she joins me now. Deb, thank you so much for being with us on this of all days. I've been thinking about you nonstop in the past few weeks. I've been thinking about our men and women in uniform. And I've been thinking about you, people who lost folks on 9-11 for whom the events in Afghanistan had to be particularly painful. How are you feeling today, one day before the actual 20-year mark? You know, I've uh, been very busy since the Afghan- Afghanistan blew up, and I haven't had time to really think about tomorrow. I usually do that in the drive down. Bob and I take the five hours to drive down from New York. Um, but I have to tell you, I'm dreading it. I'm absolutely dreading it because, um, first of all, the DOD uh, has, has closed that um, observance to only family members. They, are, they have cut out all of members of the military that usually go. And um, I, I contested that. 
I sent letters to, you know, explain why that is a bad idea and um, didn't win that one. So um, it, I usually like to stand with those guys. I usually don't stand up front where all the families are. I like to stand with all the guys and gals in uniform with their combat patches and uh, they won't be there. So it kind of um, amplifies the anguish I felt over what's going on in Afghanistan. It's like a way of making you feel even more alone on one of the most painful days of your life. Yeah. And they used COVID as an excuse. I, I'm not even buying that um, <laughs> that at all. Um, but uh, it is what it is. So we'll be there. And I understand that President Biden is going to be making an appearance at all three um, sites in, in Shanksville, Pentagon and New York. I'm not sure if he's going to speak. Um, I have a feeling he won't because <laughs> that he might get heckled. And I, I think that would be, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of President Biden. I think he's been uh, derelict of duty. I really think it's shameful what he's done, but he's still the president. And I wouldn't want to see him heckled um, in, in front of all the world by these by families. Um, not saying he doesn't deserve it, but it's not a good look for our country. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so I'm not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, there's whispers that President Obama might come to uh, think, New York. Do you think, Deb, that that there would have been any risk of heckling and so on prior to Afghanistan, or is this just about the the intense anger the families are feeling about how that was handled? Oh, definitely the intense anger about how that was handled. Um, the 9/11 families very early on um, uh, had a there was a bond that happened very quickly with the U.S. military. Um, I mean, I actually <laughs> began a letter writing campaign, just me. Um, I, when, whenever there was a casualty, I would look the, the person up. I would find out about their life and I would write to their family, a personal letter. And the ones that really got to me were the ones who enlisted because of 9-11. I can think of uh, two, a, a, a young man named Diego Rancon. He was only 14 on 9-11. His brother came home and found him in front of the TV. His fists balled up and said he wanted to serve his country. And when he turned 18, he did, and he died in Iraq. Mm. Another one was Colin Wolf. I discovered him um, on the fifth anniversary. Um, there was a grave in Arlington. We always go over to Section 60 in Arlington to pay respects to the war on terror vets who died there. That's where they're buried. There was a fresh grave there, and I thought, I've never seen a, 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 a funeral uh, happened. All the flowers, fresh flowers were still piled on the grave. They just buried him on 9-11. So I looked him up and I couldn't find any, out anything about him because he had only been killed two weeks earlier. On the way home the next day, there was a whole page about him. He was 14 on 9-11. Um, he, he said, I'm going to be a Marine. Um, he did. He, um, he died two weeks on his first deployment, um, hit by an IED. I mean, this is the, these brave hearts. These are the these are the people I think about. Now, of course, I've met a lot of the wounded warriors and done events with them, and you know they've really struggled. They've really, really had a rough time. Not only losing parts of their bodies and um, traumatic brain injury, but the PTSD. Um, those are the ones I immediately thought of when I saw these people clinging to the airplanes. Um, and the people left behind because I knew that the suicide lines were going to be hotlines were going to be ringing off the hook. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that this is harder on them than anybody, these vets, these combat vets. You've been such an outspoken advocate in the war on terror uh, for measures to keep us safe, 
um, for people to be honest about who attacked us and why and not try to sugarcoat anything, not to, not try to demonize whole swaths of people, but to be honest about what we were up against that day and, and thereafter. And I I wonder if if you think now in the wake of this past month, what happened in Afghanistan, we're less safe. I mean, how what is how safe are we today on this 20 year mark versus on September 10th, 2001? We're much, we're in much graver danger, Megan, and um, much more, much more danger now because we now have um, the Taliban. Remember, the Taliban is a terrorist organization. The Taliban sheltered Al Qaeda. They, um, they, they protected Osama bin Laden. They uh, provided a, a a training camp for all of the all of the nineteen hijackers who who. Um, attacked the, the cockpits that day. They were all trained in Al Farouk. That was in Afghanistan. They were um, taught to kill the pilots, but they used short knives and they practiced on sheep and camel. And that was all provided to them and made safe for them by the Taliban. I actually, you know, when the whole issue of this war paradigm versus um, legal paradigm is being argued, um, and I was arguing for the for the war paradigm for prosecuting these people in war crimes, not in federal courts like bank robbers. I I, I wanted to know who these people are because are the, the the what I call the what they call themselves the Gitmo Bar, the pro bono lawyers from some of the biggest white shoe firms in in all of America, were were defending them and saying, well, these are just goat herders and you know innocent people who got caught up in you know in in the fog of war. No, I I read their combat status reviews. I read a lot of them. These are committed jihadists. They came from all over the Arab world, all over the Muslim world, because to die in defense of the fifth pillar of Islam, which is the defense of religion, you know, spreading the Ummah, is to to die as a shaheed, a holy warrior. Is um, it, it is the highest thing you can can happen to you, you can do in life. And so, yes, some of them came from Kuwait, from Saudi Arabia, uh, from. Um, in little countries I'd never heard of. And, and some of them were educated. Um, uh, but they, 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 were, they were in Kosovo. Some of them are veterans of Kosovo. Um, so uh, this isn't like they have a grievance and they're there to, you know, settle this grievance and then go home. This is endless. This is endless war for them. And so, you know, in 2012, Obama stood in front of us at the Pentagon on the, on the anniversary and he, he did a brag that Osama bin Laden will never hurt us again because a lot of that had happened the year before. And then he said, and he said, the, Al Qaeda is on the run. And then he said, and this is very important to hear today, this is 2012. In 2014, the war will be over. Well, the enemy gets a say in that. Mm -hmm. And wars aren't over when, when they're declared over. There's either a defeat, a, uh, an, an um, uncontroversial, undeniable un, un defeat, or there's a, a, a surrender. That's it. And we weren't going to have that. So, and it's important to note that five hours or five and a half hours after he said those words at the Pentagon, our embassy in Cairo was attacked. Um, the American flag was taken down from this giant embassy. Uh, the, the black flag of ISIS was hoisted up. It stayed there for three days because Morsi, the president of Egypt, had been installed in the Arab Spring, a Muslim Brotherhood figure, a member. And that night, Benghazi, we lost Chris, um, the ambassador, 
uh, Stevens. Yes, and three Americans. That's their answer to these declarations by American presidents who don't um, who, who don't know who these people really are. They think it's it's not just a fight over territory. It's a fight over for them, for their divinely inspired mission. Well, that's, I mean, to me, it's crazy when you listen to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs say, yeah, we're likely to see attacks on America between 12 and 13 months from now, launched from Al-Qaeda uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, okay, we, we fought a whole war to try to stop that from happening again. Our Secretary of Defense saying the same thing and saying, oh, don't don't worry, because we're going to keep eyes on them from other countries in the region. You know, we're, we're going to be able to sort of keep eyes on them. <laughs> really? How well, is that going to be? Like, uh, Megan, I'd like to, him to enumerate which other countries in the region he's talking about, because um, Pakistan has always been a, a double dealer. Uh, that's where <laughs> Bin Laden was all those years, mm -hmm. and they were protecting him. They're a nuclear power, okay? And um, I don't think we're going to have a, a base set up um, side by side with our Taliban neighbors. That's where the leader of the Taliban was uh, all these years, a newly installed leader, um, when he, he was brought back, to, you know, with celebration. Um, so where else? Where else are we going to go? They they already have outreach the Taliban to um, China and Russia. You know, opening the bidding um, for resources in Afghanistan, and they're going to get a lot of money. And you have this administration now talking already talking. I, I'm telling you, it's 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 uh, it's really hard to take it all in. They're talking about all the humanitarian aid they plan to give the new um, emirate of 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 Afghanistan. Islamic, Islamic Emirate, Emirate, yeah. to help the poor people who are being brutalized and starved um, by this new government that we helped install our former enemies. Uh, I say our current enemies. We're now going to go and mitigate the crap they do to these uh, poor Afghanist, Afghanist, uh, Afghan people by sending them aid, which will never, of course, get to them. Right, and it will course. be millions, if not billions of dollars. I just think this is crazy town. And yes, we're more in danger because we don't have the territory. We don't have the eyes from the sky because, you know, they say over the horizon. Well, as somebody, one of these security experts um, who does the geospatial stuff said, no, it's really more over the horizon, over the horizon. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, to, to, to pretend that it's anywhere near as good as us having boots on the ground there and actual intel on the ground is, of course, a fallacy. The the other thing I wanted to ask you about is this, you know, I see it all the time. I'm sure you see it more than I do, that people are losing sight of what happened to us that day, how severe it was and who did it. And as I saw that story I mentioned in the intro about the Virginia Department of Education releasing some two hour video telling students we will not be getting into American exceptionalism as we approach this 9-11 moment as we I, I don't want to call it an anniversary. You know, it seems like celebratory in some weird way. But as we approach the 20 year mark, there will not be discussion here of American exceptionalism, that our teachers need to be culturally responsive and inclusive uh, in discussing 9-11, teach students about it in a way that does not cause harm. And they mean um, toward anybody of the Muslim faith and that that basically it would be highly inappropriate to talk about extremists being behind the 9-11 attack, that you should not have to identify them as Muslim extremists or call them out as terrorists at all. 
<laughs> so this video, they put it out. It's now been taken down. But the woman behind it, Amara DeCure, is one of the featured speakers and stands by this position that that we shouldn't be talking about Muslim extremism on 9-11 and certainly not American exceptionalism. Well, I my response to that is you know, it's a, a simple one. You must not really care too much about Muslims themselves because they are the number one target of um, this. I wouldn't call it Muslim extremism. Uh, I would call it Islamic extremism. Yeah. Um, you know, they are they are they are beaten, killed, um, raped, uh, kidnapped, beheaded. Um, this is all done in the name of their harsh form of Islam. And they come to this country to escape that. Uh, I imagine, imagine being a Muslim mother who has left um, an, uh, an area of the world where this takes place, this kind of extremely brutal Sharia. And you, you think you've made it to you know, the promised land of America and freedom. And now you've got a teacher preaching this kind of thing in the classroom. It, imagine what a, um, how that would mess with your child's head. I mean, I, I think these people really don't care about Muslims at all. They are what they are talking about is a political cause um, and some kind of um, hatred of America or American. I, I don't I don't know. There's they, they all have their different reasons, but um, I think it's cruel to Muslims. And I think this form of Sharia is is just it, it crushes the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, There's I don't a think way of talking about who attacked us on 9-11 without condemning condemning all Muslims. Right. Islamic extremists. Exactly. Absolutely exactly. Did. Because I, I recognize that the vast majority of Muslims do not identify with the people who took you know, do these attacks, much less 9-11. And I, I, I can't tell you how many Muslims I've talked to who engage me, I'll be in the back of the cab talking in my cell phone. And um, the cab driver will turn around and said, you know, I'm from Egypt. I've been here 25 years. I agree with everything you're saying. There's, you know, all the mosques in Queens uh, have these radicals in there. I tell my kids to go in, pray and get out. Um, I don't think they know their audience, quite frankly. And I don't think they're speaking to Muslims like this. Let me ask you this. We've got um, just a short time. And I just I've been dying to ask you about your um, your piece in The Wall Street Journal on people who keep comparing 9-11 to January 6th, who actually say January 6th was worse than 9-11. We've played the soundbite before. They they, I mean, Matthew Dowd, uh, George Will. I could go on on those who have made this, I think, disgusting comparison. Your response to them, Deb? It's almost hard to. It, it's flabbergasting to me. Um, they, I think they're they're they, they, what they hang it on their hook is that um, January sixth was a, was a threat to democracy. Well, that's I think intellectually kind of shifty and um, um, thin because you could I think you could argue that virtually everything Congress is doing right now is a threat to democracy when they're trying to you know, basically create one party rule in, you know, in perpetuity. Um, But that doesn't bother them. But let's be fair here. Even Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, testified before for um, in an oversight committee, Judiciary Committee on March 2nd. He knew that early that none of the people who were inside the building were armed. None, not one of them. most of the uh, charges, I've looked at them, I've read some of the charge sheets, 
They're for very low level felonies. And what they're trying to do is leverage these people to plead out because honest to God, Megan, I, 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 if they had lawyers and they took these to court and it, it would be a big burden on the courts because I, there's, I think 50 people or more who've been charged. Um, I, I think they'd all get acquitted because there's no intent in any of these things. I mean, there's no intent. You have to, it's, it's a, you know, it's part of almost every felony. You have to be, you have to intend to do it. And in too many of these um but to compare cases, it to, to- they were invited in and, and there's video of them standing there with security guards um, telling their people, OK, no, don't touch anything. Don't hurt any of these guys. I'm talking some of the defendants. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think I think Christopher Ray that got this, they created this thing, shock and awe, where they went out and arrested people in mass in real scary ways. I mean, I saw one arrest in Ohio. Well, no, he so- clearly, they, they clearly, you know, swept up as many people as possible. But I, I literally only have 30 seconds. I just wanted to give you the chance to, like your message for those who continue to try to bring up 9-11 as comparable to anything. You're making a fool of yourself. The, 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 the place has been capital bomb people shot inside the building there's a whole history of many many worse actual attacks that weren't a threat to democracy they were crimes these people did low-level crimes and it's really an insult to to the whole country of what we went through on 9-11 to make that kind of comparison it's it's an Good insult enough. to us who went to war because of that day I'll be saying a prayer for you and for your brother and your whole family uh tomorrow thank you so much deb Thank you. Coming up, uh, the CEO of the incredible Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Frank Siller, and the story of what his brother did on 9-11 that will touch your heart. Don't go away. Attention. If you owe the IRS, this is an important announcement. COVID relief is over and the IRS is ramping up like never before, sending out millions of collection letters to start 2024. Do you owe $10,000 or more or have unfiled returns? Now is the time to act. The IRS can garnish your wages, seize your property, and they can even take your home or your business. Don't let the IRS take advantage of you. It's time to call Tax Network USA. Their team of experienced tax lawyers has already saved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients. They know how to negotiate with the IRS and can help you too. Visit TNUSA.com or call 1-800-245-6000. Again, that's 1-800-245-6000. Don't wait until it's too late. Take control of your tax situation today with Tax Network USA. 1-800-245-6000. Call now. Welcome back to the Megan Kelly Show, everyone. We are sharing some stories of 9-11 today with the 20th mark, 20th year mark tomorrow. And we want to hear from you, too. What do you remember about that day? What do you think we've learned as a country since that day? Let me know. Call at 833-44-MEGYN. That's 833-446-3496. I want to bring in, as we wait to talk to you guys, the story I want to bring in Frank Siller uh, and the story of his brother. Frank and I have known each other for a long time now. He runs an amazing, amazing um, organization called Tunnel to Towers. And there's a very good reason that they called it that in honor of his brother, firefighter Stephen Siller. Um, it, for those of you who are too young, because there really are people like that, you know, it's hard to believe to remember this fateful day. Uh, you know that it, it remains the deadliest, deadliest terrorist act in world history. 
the attack on our country on 9-11. 19 militants associated with the Islamic extremist group Al-Qaeda hijacked four airplanes. Two of them were flown into the Twin Towers. The third plane hit the Pentagon. That's the one that Deb Burlingame's brother was flying um, where he was he was killed and the terrorists took over. The fourth plane crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, after it had been taken over by the passengers who refused to let the terrorists crash it, as we believe, into the U.S. Capitol. We believe that they saved countless lives by doing that. 2,977 people were killed, 2,977. More than 6,000 were injured. New York City lost 441 first responders. An estimated 200 people jumped or fell off of the Twin Towers as they faced the horrific choice of either being burned alive or jumping to their death. Um, in the weeks after, Ground Zero was a disaster area, and firefighters and other first responders continued to dig through the remains, trying to find any survivors initially, and then just the remains of loved ones for those waiting for some sort of a word and some sort of a piece of their loved ones. More than 2,700 people have died from cancer after having sifted through that rubble. Many other illnesses caused as well by the exposure to um, what remained of the Twin Towers there. Cancers have been reported nearly 13,000 of those uh, who helped. Nearly 80,000 responders have enrolled in, in the health program that came out of that effort. Think of that, just the massive amount of damage done. We're not even talking about the loss of life in Afghanistan and then Iraq and so on. It just unleashed such hell on our nation, and it should never be compared to anything because it's singular uh, in its horror. The people who make us think about 9-11 feel, and feel something other than horror, make us feel proud, make us feel grateful to be Americans, are people like Stephen Siller. His brother Frank's with me now. Frank, thank you so much for being here. We've talked a lot of, a lot of times uh, as we approach 9-11 or on the actual day. Can we just start with, can you tell us a little bit about Stephen? Tell, and, and by the way, we'll get to why you're in your car, because it's actually a great story, but just tell us a little <laughs> bit about Stephen. Well, first of all, thank you, Megan, and thank you for all the years that you've allowed me to tell my brother's story. It has meant the world to me. Uh, my brother was a New York City firefighter who, on September 11, 2001, he just finished his uh, night tour in Squad 1 in Brooklyn. As a matter of fact, I was just there a few uh, less than an hour ago. Mm. And um, he was on his way home to play golf with myself, my brother George, my brother Russ, and he heard on his radio scanner that the towers were hit. So he turned his truck around, called his wife up, Sally, and said, hey, tell my brothers uh, I'll try to catch up with them later. Went to his firehouse, got his gear, and drove to the mouth of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Now, for those who might not know, that tunnel connects Brooklyn with downtown Manhattan. It's nearly two miles long. It was closed for security reasons because cars were abandoned and they didn't want anyone coming into New York um, other than first responders. But they couldn't get the trucks, fire trucks through anymore because everything was abandoned. So he strapped 60 pounds of gear on his back and ran through that tunnel, came out the other side. And, you know, I was just listening uh, to your previous uh, segment and um, and your your introduction here when you were saying that people were faced with a horrific decision. So my brother came out of that tunnel and he saw two buildings, the Twin Towers, inflamed and people that were faced with a decision to jump or burn the people above the, the fire line. And that's what has to be told, that story. 
But my brother ran uh, went into what we believe was a South Tower. He was never recovered, but he, the, his other squad one buddies all died in the South Tower. So that's where we believe he was. You would want to fight this fire with your, with your people you train with every single day. And he gave up his life and he so inspired his uh, older siblings. And Stephen was the youngest of seven that we started a foundation called uh, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation in his honor and the honor of all those who perished that day, but most certainly our first responders. It's it's so moving to think about this 34 year old guy, father of five kids. How many kids did he have, Frank? Five kids. Five, five kids. kids. Could try to get back, get back to the site of danger. His shift was over. I mean, honestly, there, there are some people in the world who would have said my shift is over. Um, and and when faced with not being able to get through the tunnel, strapping the 60 pounds of gear on his back and running for it, running for it, saying, no, no, I will be the one who gets there. I will be the one who runs into the burning building. And the stories are that the firefighters, the first responders, a lot of them hugged one another before they went into those buildings. And they knew very well that they could be climbing those stairs to their death. But they did it by the hundreds, Frank, by the hundreds to try to save others. Well, I uh, it's very emotional even just hearing you say that, because we have we filmed about 75 different stories this year, Megan, of the stories of the 9-11. And to almost every one of them, these firefighters dig hug each other and said, hey, bro, I don't know if I'm going to see you after today so they knew the possibility that they weren't coming out was very high and yet they still went in in there i mean if that's not a hero we don't have any in this world mm -hmm. and thank god we do have them here in america and we better always take care of these heroes when they do things like this so uh, my brother Stephen, I couldn't be more proud of him and what he did and uh that's why our foundation it's a very simple mission we want to first make sure we never forget and we want to honor the sacrifice and then we honor the sacrifice by doing good and Megan we're doing good for these great American families that pay the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom whether they serve for our country or for our community and they leave young families behind so mm -hmm. and you've been a part of it for a long time I've been very proud to be a part of it and associated with you guys the you know it must be said the police too on that day ran into the buildings and you know it's that's one of the hard thing about seeing them demonized as a group it's like you the cops i remember are the ones who ran into those build, burning buildings alongside steven you know they're not all good but they're not all bad either it's one of the terrible things that's happened in our current society is there's these swaths of people demonized as awful when it's not true but can you tell me because if you do the Tunnel to Towers run, because they do it every year, Frank's organization, you, know, you can go and you can actually do the run that Stephen Siller did. Um, you see Iraq and Afghanistan vets, guys who have no legs doing this run. And I'm telling you, you want to feel something about your country. Some, you want to feel proud of your countrymen. You go there and you see these guys. They it takes everything they've got inside of them. They're sweating. They're gritting it out. They don't complain. Everyone stands when those guys cross the finish line. The cheers are deafening. Everyone is just roaring for them. It I don't know. It's like it makes you feel something. It makes you remember why you love this country, why you love our military. It's yet another reason to do it. But what we're really there for is to support severely injured veterans and um, other people in law enforcement who have lost their primary wage earner in, in the line of service and so on. Right, Frank? I mean, it's 
we're there to try to help guys get home so they can live something close to a normal life. Correct. And, uh, you know, you've done the run. Uh, you've seen it. These great heroes uh, that gave their bodies for our country. You, it, Megan, we have hundreds and hundreds of Gold Star families that come out and, and, and run the race in, in honor of their loved one that gave gave their life. Um, we have um, we have a uh, you know, we lost 13 uh, service members. Uh, recently in Iraq, 13 that we shouldn't have, uh, we shouldn't have lost by any means. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I talked to both families after that and no, they're distraught, they're distraught. But here's the one thing, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, we know that, uh, the, the widow of, uh, United States Marine Corps, Lance Corporal, uh, Riley McCollum, his wife, Jenna, um, is going to be giving birth in a couple of days. And you know what? I'm going to talk to her tomorrow on 9-11. And I'm going to tell her, and she knows already, but I'm going to speak to her that we're going to deliver her a mortgage-free home. And I don't know if she has a home yet. If she doesn't, we're going to build her one. She's only 20 years old, so I doubt she has a home. So we're going to build her a mortgage-free home. And that's what the Tunnel to Towers Foundation does. We want to be there for these great families that die for you and I. And and you talk about police officers. Let me tell you something. I've been around police officers all my life, but most certainly the last 20 years. Yeah, there are very few, very few ones that are not good, but 99.9% are beautiful and they're willing to die for us every single day. And many times they do. And you know what? Instead of spitting on the ground, some Americans do when they see them, they should kiss the ground they go on because without them, we have no society. And uh, so we take care of those, uh, the families are left behind, the first responders also that die for us and pay off their mortgages as well. Yeah. Uh, so we're very proud of the work we're doing. Whenever I see a firefighter or a cop or a man or woman in uniform, I say the same thing. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. It's very dangerous what these guys do. And, you know, obviously we saw it on 9-11 and in some of the incidents I mentioned thereafter, you know, those guys who worked tirelessly at Ground Zero. My my close friend Janice Dean, her husband was one of them. He's, thank God, OK yes. right now. But they have to live with the fear that, you know, any time he gets a cough, it's it's related to what happened at Ground Zero. And families like yours are still dealing with the fallout from the the loss. Frank, I saw a story this this week about the New York City Medical Examiner's Office um, still, after all this time, sifting through the remains to try to find any way to ID some of those remains to the to the names, the, some 1,100 names that have still not, they, there's no, been no actual proof of death. I mean, we know they died in 9-11, but... And they found they find they find tiny bone fragments and they are able to test them against DNA provided by the families. And they they are still maybe one a year now uh, able to say, OK, we, we found the remains of your loved one. I wanted to ask you about it. Forgive me. I know it's a sensitive subject, but having not found any remains of Stephen, is that something you would want? Would that just open old wounds? No, I don't. It wouldn't. If I found it, it'd be great. I mean, they'll get me wrong, uh, but I don't need that to move on and be happy in life. Um, be quite frank with you, his burial ground is at ground zero. Uh, that's where it would have been for me, no matter what. That's where Stephen's uh, soul is, uh, is and uh, his spirit is with many people, and certainly with his family, but that's where Stephen's burial ground is. So I don't need that. Uh, if other families do, I, I don't, you know, I understand. I don't ever speak for anybody else but i certainly uh, don't need I, I don't need that but look um we're, we're blessed as a family that we took on 
Right after Stephen died, we made a conscious decision that all we wanted to do was take that evil and to make some good out of it. And that's what we do at the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. And I've been on a journey uh, this uh, this last six weeks, to be quite frank with you. I've uh, I started walking on August 1st from the Pentagon. I've walked to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and I'm Tomorrow morning, I'll be walking, retracing my brother's final heroic footsteps when he ran through that tunnel. I'll be doing it at the, when the sun is coming up tomorrow morning. Mm. And I couldn't be more proud of uh, what my brother did 20 years ago. And I just wanted to do something to honor him. And it'll be five, it's 537 miles. That's why I'm sitting in my car right now, because I was right. walking just, <laughs> just before th this interview. Um, I was just at Squad One. I have this shirt on. I just had a, a, a late brunch with them, with some guys that work with my brother, other new guys that, you know, they're in the firehouse because uh, um, he was pretty close to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. And I, I was just eating with them and we're laughing. And, and I'll be honest with you, I was crying too because mm. I was by his locker and uh, I was with my son and, and uh, to be with the. Uh, to be with the people that uh, that knew him and, and loved him uh, means all the world to me. So yeah. what, you never what? get over something like this, Megan. You never no. get over something like this, but you learn to live with it. But they don't want us to be sad. They want us to be happy and live a full life. And that's the best way you can honor anybody is by doing good and live a full life. That's right. So you tell me, because I was reading in my my team prepares, you know, research packets for me, some data about your the reception you've been getting uh, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere along this this route you're traveling. Can you talk about that? Oh, no, it's been it's been uh, I, 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 I was so looking forward to doing it, but and I expected a lot out of it, uh, but I've gotten so much more than I could ever expect it. It's so emotional. Um, so uplifting Americans shouting, never forget from their cause. I, I can't tell you how many people knew I was doing this. I was shocked to be quite frank with you, um, how many people cared. And that gives me great hope for America. This, this walk for me personally has given me unbelievable hope for America. You know, the big mouths that complain about it. Um, they speak over the people who love America and there's more people out there that love America. We're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect, but let me tell you something We're the greatest country that ever existed. And, uh, we better remember our history because we don't want another nine 11. Um, th that is uh, for sure. But I got to tell exactly. you one, one quick story. Yeah. Um, I was at uh, Shanksville and I I've had firefighters travel with me almost the whole time. And uh, four of them been cooking for me, different guys in and out. But that's another story <laughs> for another day. Uh, I, I, but, but this is the answer, guys, truth. Every day, br a brunch and dinner. And I, I'm going to tell you, the only guy is going to walk 537 miles and put weight on. So that's <laughs> because of the way these guys have been cooking for me. They've been taking care of me. But they wanted to honor and do something also because they lost so many great friends that day. But anyway, we, I was at Shanksville Fire Department on August 21st. And we and all my buddies, 70 about 70, 75 firefighters, New York City firefighters, cooked breakfast for them. And then we all walked up, hundreds and hundreds of us walked up to uh, to the site of Flight 93 that came down in, in, in the fields of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And I had the uh, privilege to go right to the impact zone, right where Flight 93 came down. And you just hit it nail on the head earlier when you said, these are the 40 Americans that won the first battle of the war against terrorism when they took that plane back and they mm -hmm. saved American lives on the ground and they brought it down. And I was at that impact zone and I was with these New York City firefighters and I knelt down right at the boulder and I put my hand on the boulder 
And I said to them, anybody want to join me in a prayer? They all came. They knelt down. We put our hands on the boulder and I started to say the Lord's prayer. And the emotions were gushing out of us like I can't even explain to you because I know they're thinking of their firefighter brothers that they lost that day. I know they're thinking of all those who perished. I'm thinking of my brother, of course, and I'm thinking of these 40 great heroes. I'm thinking of what happened to Pentagon, and it all just came out of us in in that moment. And Mm -hmm. it's a moment I'll never uh, forget the rest of my life. And I know that will be a moment that I will have tomorrow morning when I walk up to Ground Zero, when I go to 10 House, a firehouse, where my brother actually worked a part of his career for the FDNY. And his name is on that wall there with 343 other firefighters. And, and I, and I say my prayer there with my family, with my kids, with my grandkids, with my brothers, with my sisters and others, nephews and nieces. And, um, and you know what? I just pray America never forgets what happened 40 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, That's right. And, and also, Frank remembers the courage, remembers the courage that happened on that day, not just the cowardice for, of the terrorists and, and the awful behavior, but the courage of guys like Todd Beamer and the others uh, on board that cool. flight. Let's roll. Right. It, they knew it was going to happen, but they fought. They fought going down. Guys like your brother, Stephen, who understood very well the risks and were hugging their friends goodbye, knowing that they had a wife, knowing that they had kids, but understanding that it was their duty and they had pledged to do it and they did it despite the grave danger. Um, they're an inspiration to me. And so are you love tunnel to towers. Good luck tomorrow. Please kiss all those guys for me and gals and give them all big hugs. And I'll kiss uh, the gals, I, not the guys, I'll hug the guys. <laughs> but listen, uh, Megan, I got to yeah. say once again, everybody that you personally have helped build many of the first, uh, specially adapted smart homes that we built for our country's most catastrophically injured service members. You were responsible for that. You brought to light the Tunnel to Towers Foundation and the work that we're doing. And I am forever indebted to you for that. And it's just to so know that Thank part you, of Frank. our success is because of you. Of course, we couldn't, we'll continue doing that work and who we're helping is why we are successful. But thank, thank you. you. Uh, God bless you. And most certainly, uh, God bless America. Amen. You guys got to check it out. Tunnel to Towers. Wait, before I let you go, what's uh, I should know this by heart already. The Tunnel to Towers website. Well, I'm going to make it easy. I'm going to yeah. make it easy for everybody. Do it. T2T.org. That's T2T.org. It stands for Tunnel to Towers. Yeah. Because my brother ran through the tunnel to the towers. T, the number two, T.org. And we ask everybody to do as little as $11 a month, $11 a month. You know, we're delivering 200 mortgage-free homes this year alone, Megan. 200 this year. But we need to do that every single year. And we need Americans uh, to chip in and, and, and to help these great families that paid the ultimate sacrifice. God bless you, Frank. God bless you too, Megan. Mm. Wow. Coming up next, military veteran and U.S. Congressman Dan Crenshaw will be here with his, his thoughts on where we are now, 20 years later. And after Dan, we're going to be taking your calls. Uh, let us know what you think about Afghanistan, about the COVID orders that we got from King Joe at the top of the hour we talked about, uh, or about what you're thinking about uh, this 20 years after 9-11. 833-44-MEGYN. That's 833-446-3496. Attention. If you owe the IRS, this is an important announcement. COVID relief is over and the IRS is ramping up like never before, sending out millions of collection letters to start 2024. Do you owe $10,000 or more or have unfiled returns? Now is the time to act. 
The IRS can garnish your wages, seize your property, and they can even take your home or your business. Don't let the IRS take advantage of you. It's time to call Tax Network USA. Their team of experienced tax lawyers has already saved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients. They know how to negotiate with the IRS and can help you, too. Visit TNUSA.com or call 1-800-245-6000. Again, that's 1-800-245-6000. Don't wait until it's too late. Take control of your tax situation today with Tax Network USA. 1-800-245-6000. Call now. It's another morning, and you're all set for work. You grab your coffee, head out the door, and your car decides today's the day it won't start. Panic sets in. You're not just late. You're stranded. Get ahead of unexpected car repairs before they strike with CarShield, the most trusted vehicle protection company. For almost 20 years, CarShield has saved millions of drivers from repair nightmares with low monthly plans that cover up to 5,000 major parts and systems, like pricey transmission and engine repairs and check engine light mysteries. Visit CarShield today at carshield.com carlson. Plans include unlimited miles, 24-7 roadside assistance, help with flats, lockouts, and rental car options. Save 20% and get a free quote by visiting CarShield online at carshield.com slash carlson. Don't wait for the next surprise. Choose peace of mind with CarShield. Go to carshield.com slash carlson and save 20% today. Welcome back, everyone, to The Megan Kelly Show. We're taking your calls now at 833-44-MEGYN. That's 833-446-3496 if you have thoughts on Biden's COVID announcements uh, or on 9-11 and whether we are safer now than we were on September 10th, 2001. Joining me now with his thoughts this morning is Congressman Dan Crenshaw. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. Uh, and on on this day of all days, I have to thank you for your service as we kick it off. Before we get to Afghanistan and, and 9-11, can we talk about last night? Because it, it was an extraordinary moment to listen to the president of the United States issue edicts as though he were king about 80 million Americans having to get a needle in the arm or be fired. Uh, so says he. Your thoughts? Well, it's illegal. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't think I need to be to, to know that you, you, you can't create that kind of edict from the executive level. Frankly, I'm not even sure Congress could pass a law to, to that extent and, 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 and it still be constitutional. But it certainly can't happen from the executive level. Um, it, it, it's such a massive overreach. And it, it, I also think it just flies in the face of common sense. If you're, you know, let, let's assume that it was perfectly legal and we had a king that could do such a thing. But then the question would be what, whether it's even good policy. Is, is, this, is this the right way to deal with a pandemic and, our, and, uh, and, and to institute this public health measures? And I would say no. I mean, look, whether we like it or not, we do live in a free country. I like that. Uh, some people apparently don't. And you have to build trust with people. If you want them to do something, there's a variety of, of public policy measures that you can take to get them to do something. Usually you incentivize it. Uh, you might punish a behavior, especially a violent behavior. Uh, or you can do the most extreme version, which is mandates. And we very rarely do that. And to do that for for a pandemic like this one, is it bad? Yes. Is it unprecedented? Not quite. Um, you know, we've learned to live with it to, to an extraordinary degree. Everybody who wants to get vaccinated can. Uh, if you do get vaccinated, it's a very high likelihood you will not be hospitalized and that you'll be fine. 
And personal choice and personal responsibility play a large part in that. And what 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 I think Biden is doing too, this is the this is the the, the other bad part about this is he's causing more distrust in the vaccine. The, the vaccine's already been politicized, right? The left all bad-mouthed the vaccine when, when Trump was touting um, Operation Warp Speed, and, it, and now it's flipped. In any case, if you want to build trust in it, you need to be honest with people. Be honest about the pros and cons, the risks and the benefits, uh, and, and don't make it seem like you you, like you're forcing people to do it. That just causes more distrust. I mean, what you resist persists. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a terrible leadership move. Um, it's not practical. And it, it flies in the face of who we are as Americans, I think. I have to ask a cynical question, but to what extent you think, do you think this is the result of his falling polls? And he gave a little present to more left-leaning voters who love vaccine mandates and he doesn't really care about pissing off you know, Republicans or people who lean right. And here you go. It may be unconstitutional, but they're going to love it. They're going to eat it up. And so let's get those poll numbers back up to where they were before. That, that, that's possible. I, I would have, like, if I was in his inner circle in the White House, I would have advised against that because I really don't see how this could possibly be more popular. You're correct. It's very popular, again, uh, for, you know, primary vote, Democrat primary voters. They want to see these kind of mandates. I mean, it's what they vote for. They want to see tax increases. At least they say they do. I'm not sure how they feel when they actually get that tax mm -hmm. bill. But, you know, so that's true. But, you know, with independence, th this is still not going to be popular. And I, I think he got some bad advice if, if, if it was political advice, because they, they probably said something along the lines of, look, Americans don't think that you take action, right? But we saw what happened in Afghanistan. We sort of just let that fall apart. Americans don't think you take action. So here's an opportunity for you to really take action. And this is a very leftist way of thinking, right? They believe there's some sort of moral good in action. doesn't matter what the action is. It's just, it's action. Government is what we do together and we all have to do it. Like they, they believe there's some moral good in that where on the right, we believe more in individual freedoms and personal responsibility and decentralized command. Uh, they don't. And so they actually think this is a good thing. So there's, I think there's a lot of psychology playing into this, perhaps some politics, but I, I, again, I don't see how this makes him more popular. I think it's a bad move if that was their goal. So uh, one issue on which some on the left and some on the right have agreed is this concept of endless wars that we had to pull out of Afghanistan because it was an endless war. And I think that's why you had agreement from between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, you know, who Trump was more of a populist, but he had run on getting pulling, putting an end to the endless war. It's not how all Republicans feel, but it's how he felt in sort of a base of his faction or a faction of his base. So you had an interesting response to that, the so-called endless war crowd that I thought was really powerful. And I'll just read how you put it and let you take it from there. You say the advocates of this position, they have a blind spot. They are unable to distinguish between wasteful nation building and a small residual force that conducts occasional counter-terror operations. That's it, right? Isn't that that's the whole thing boiled down into one sentence. Yeah. And, and I would say there's that is right. And there's there's more to it than even that. They also have a blind spot in the sense that they have an inability um, to, I think, assess reality, the reality that's given to us. They, they, they seem to believe that we can have it both ways, prevent 9-11s, prevent terrorist safe havens and keep all of our troops just safe at home and bases mm -hmm. here in the United States. And for some reason, that makes them feel good. They don't quite understand that the purpose of national defense or, or, or that in implementing national defense, you do need to be forward deployed. 
this is so there's a lack of understanding from this crowd. As no, because well. they're looking at things like the bin Laden strike and Soleimani and saying, let's just do that. We'll just keep our troops at exactly. home and do that. That's a great point to bring up. And they do say that all the time. Right. They're like, we like that kind of stuff. They're like, it's cool. Makes us feel good. We're in and out. And what I tell them is you like that. That's great. Guess what? You can't do that if you're not forward deployed. Soleimani, we had guys on the ground. Uh, Baghdadi, we had people forward deployed. We had intel assets constantly working for years, networking to figure out where these people are. Uh, same with Osama bin Laden. That took years of, of intel gathering and networking and planning. And of course, we launched that mission from Afghanistan. So there's just the no more endless wars crowd is, is look, I mean, I don't speak very kindly about them. It's based in complete ignorance about how national security works and what would it, what it takes to do counterterrorism operations. So that's that's first and foremost. They also live in a dream world where you can have it both ways. And you know what I ask them is, do, do you at least acknowledge that there's a difficult decision to make on day two of the Afghanistan war? Because on day one, everybody agreed. On day one, everybody said, let's go. Okay, we're, we, we had almost 3,000 people die that day. So we're going to war for this. Everybody agreed. Now day two, is always going to be a difficult decision. And the decision is always this. Do we just pull out and leave and allow the exact same conditions to materialize that led to September 11th, and they will materialize when we leave, or do we stay and continue to fight that battle there so that it isn't fought here? And history's on my side on this. Look, in 1993, we had the World Trade Center bombings. 1998, we had the embassy bombings. 2000, we had the USS Cole bombing. They got bolder with every attack, and then they finally got the most bold with 9-11. We haven't seen attacks like that for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So to say, and, and, and so the no more endless wars crowd also makes the argument that we got nothing for these last 20 years. It was just all a big waste, right? And it's a very emotional argument that they make. But we also got no more 9-11s. Right. We got no attacks on the homeland. And that's not nothing. That, that's pretty meaningful. I and mean, they just ignore that reality. I, as, as someone who is relatively young still. That's how I feel too. I feel like you guys were over there fighting. You kept me safe. You kept my family safe. You, we didn't get nothing out of it. It ended poorly because we gave up. We, we gave, I don't even know if you can say we lost, we gave up. Um, but we didn't have another 9-11 attack and we were terrified of that in particular during the first 10 years. But even thereafter, look what, you know, when ISIS reared its ugly head and we had to fight that. And those guys were over there, all of you over there fighting on our behalf. But you you touch on the terrorism risk now and how high it is. And I'm I've been stunned at how cavalier our leaders sound about a acknowledging. Sure, it's big. The, the risk has gone up. And and B, talking about how it could happen within a year, you know, that you got Millie saying, yeah, within 12 months, we could be hit at home. The defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, said Thursday, Al Qaeda may attempt to regenerate following an American withdrawal and said, uh, but the U.S. is prepared to prevent an Al Qaeda comeback in Afghanistan. We put the Taliban on notice that we expect them not to allow that to happen. An Al Qaeda comeback. Oh, <laughs> otherwise, we're putting it in their permanent file. I mean, what what is he saying? Yeah. How what are we going to do? We're going to write a really strongly worded letter from the international community, and it's going to make the Taliban feel really icky inside. And then they're going to do whatever <laughs> we want. Right. No one I likes mean, you. It, yeah. It's, yeah. We're really upset with you. It, no, it's ridiculous. And you know, like the Millie's credit, I'm not sure what Defense Secretary Austin's advice was. But for the most part, the military is always advised. You need to keep a presence there. You need to keep a presence there or these things will happen. And what Democrats have said, what Joe Biden has said, and what our own normal in this wars crowd on our side has said, um, yeah, but we know we should obviously keep an eye on counterterrorism, but we have to pull the troops out. 
Like it's, it's just a given to them that you just have to pull the troops out. And I always ask why, why, why exactly is that a given, you know, given the costs of doing so. And they're like, well, when would you pull them out, Dan? Well, when the cost benefit makes sense, when, when the benefits of pulling them out are higher than the benefits of staying, that's when. And that certainly didn't happen now, because I don't think anybody can argue that the out the current outcome that we've seen was somehow a, a, a superior outcome to what we had six months ago. Yeah. This gets to how you initially asked this question with, with, with quoting me, was people can't tell the difference between nation building and a, and a, and a residual counterterrorism force. Now, now, the nation building argument is more complex than, than I think people uh, g- give it credit, right? It, it's not necessarily about building a democracy. Condoleezza Rice was just on Ben Shapiro's uh, uh, podcast, and it, a really good explanation of this. And she, and she says, look, it, again, you either let the conditions materialize that cause 9-11, or you try to build up a government to some extent that you can partner with and that they can eventually take over. And that takes a lot more time than Americans are willing to give it, unfortunately. People forget South Korea didn't have democratic elections until the 80s. So we were there 30 years as an occupational force, stopping war there. By the way, the war never ended. It's an armistice. But we, and we still have almost 30,000 troops there. And they didn't even have a democracy until the 80s. Okay, so these things take time. But was it worth it? Was it worth our presence? I mean, in hindsight, it seems very clear that our presence in South Korea was worth it. And um, but but we have a, a high amount of political impatience and a complete inability to see that this wasn't really an endless war. We had security forces there, very few troops, no deaths in 18 months. You know, that that's that's a that's a sustainable operation. And now if it was two hundred, well, can I ask you something? Troops, let me ask you something on, year, you can on the other heart. side. I'll, well, let me ask you something. other Because when they say no deaths in 18 months, the the. You know, we had struck a deal with the Taliban. That, so that's that's isn't that why we didn't have any casualties, because we had declared that we were surrendering I mean, that we were leaving. So they, you know, they were smart. They they kept their powder dry saying, be quiet. They surrendered. They're leaving. It, it, it's possible. I, I, I think we all kind of decided to not do very much fighting and sort of allow for this stalemate to materialize, which is sustainable. Um, and, but know, isn't the, the relevant is time not, frame like how many guys were we losing prior to Trump's deal with the well, Taliban? Right, like that's very few. I mean, since, since 2014. I mean, an average of six a year. Uh, so you're losing a lot more military guys to motorcycle accidents and things like okay, that. Okay, so how do you, as a guy who's you know sacrificed your own blood and treasure, um, fighting for our country over there, how do you how do you explain to the people who say that's six too many per year? You know, how do you want to be the one? This is sort of what Joe Biden's saying. Do you want to be the one who calls up those six gold star families and says, "What was I? You know, why do we have them there?" Because um, I've heard you talk about that. People talk about the military these days, Dan, like they're, you know, very fragile. And they don't yeah. understand that risk and death is part of the job. That's not to say we want to see it, but I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, what I tell people is, and again, especially the no more endless wars crowd that moralizes over me, calls me a neocon because I have uh, sensible opinions about foreign policy. I say, look, I don't, I don't need your pity. I don't need your protection. You have guys like me in this society because we're willing to go over and we understand the dangers abroad, even if you don't. We understand that those people are our enemies, whether we believe they're our enemies or whether we believe we're at war with them or not. You don't want to see that reality? Fine. There are plenty of people who do see that reality and are willing to risk their lives to do it. So stay out of our way. Um, you know, it, we are not victims. Veterans are not victims. Active duty military are not victims. We, we willingly sign up for this and we understand what we're getting into. Again, even if the No More Endless Wars crowd doesn't, even if their naivete 
so profound that they cannot see it, that see the reasoning that we're there, we'll still do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the other thing that I like to say, and I, I see this from our young populists on the right, they like to say, well, I mean, we just go over there and cause these wars. That's why they hate us. That's why they keep attacking us. That, that there's so much ignorance associated with that opinion. It's, it's, it's really hard to fathom. And it's just not true. Um, they've hated us because for a long time, because we're Western civilization, because we're Christian, because we represent something that 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 goes completely against their version of of, of civilization and reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we helped Osama bin Laden fight the Soviets. We helped Osama bin Laden defend. We defended Saudi Arabia, his homeland, from Saddam Hussein. What is it we did to this person that caused him to to build up Al Qaeda and commit 9/11? Nothing. You know, they hate us because they hate us. And they're at war with us, whether we're at war with them or not. We weren't at war on September 10th, 2001, but they were at war with us. And, and again, that, that naivete has gotten us into so much trouble. It, it, caused, it caused the last month of mayhem and destruction and death that we've seen. That was purely based out of the sense of false compassion that the No More Endless, Endless Wars crowd has mm-hmm. and the naivete that they engage in. I was reading a story, you know, we had Deborah Burlingame on earlier this show, whose brother Charles was the pilot of uh, Flight 77 that was flown into the Pentagon by the, the terrorists. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's trial, he, they're in pre-trial trial motions right now on that. Finally, after 20 years, it's coming up, it's supposed to take place. The actual trial is supposed to start, I think, in November. Sadly, she had another brother who was supposed to be a witness uh, in the trial and he and he died. I mean, it's been so long. He died. And um Anyway, so he's going to go on trial. And I read a story about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. You could pick so many if you want to talk about what a bad guy he is and what how awful Al Qaeda is, who will who will be rebuilding in Afghanistan. This is a small one, but it just to me, I don't know, it's just sticking in my craw. He was apparently had a pretrial motion because, you know, we put our bad guys on trial and, and give them due process. It's not perfect, but we give it to him. He he wrote down the numbers of the four flights the two planes that went into the Twin Towers, the plane that went into the Pentagon and the one that was brought down in Shanksville. And he flew the paper airplane with those four flight numbers over by the family members who were sitting in the courtroom. Wow. This is what we're I mean, dealing with. Yeah, it, it's pure evil. The, you know, this isn't, these aren't people who, you know, come to the conclusion later on in life that they may have made a mistake. <sighs> Right. These are, you know, these aren't people Personal like begging growth. for parole. Like, no, I look really, I've learned, you know, they're not those people. They never have been. Um, that, that radicalism started a long time ago before America had anything to do with it. Um, and we could go into a long history of Sunni Wahhabism and all that. But it's it's it is I, I don't know where this sort of self-loathing came from in the United States. It started on liberal college campuses and it infiltrated the right in our little populist movement. And it's based in ignorance and naivete. And it needs to stop. We need to stand up for ourselves and our values. I mean, you know, this is this is something Trump got right about just America first. And you know, what does that mean? In, in many senses it well there, there's policy associated with that with that phrase. But I think it also means just standing up for ourselves as a as a good moral nation. Mm-hmm. Like we're not always to, at fault here. Okay. You know, the, because the left likes to say that whether it's immigration, whether it's, it's terrorism. No, the only reason people are immigrating here in droves is because we cause climate change and like that. So they have to, <laughs> I mean, you know, you'll hear things like that or because of the banana republics that we set up you know, decades ago. And so that's what's happening now. It's all our fault. 
and this is this is this this is very self-destructive reasoning. Do you feel I, after that speech yesterday on the on the heels of Afghanistan, and I have to say he does seem desperate to change the conversation Biden does from Afghanistan for good reasons. I mean, his poll numbers are through the floor for a reason. Um, I I just feel like there this growing sense of malaise in the country, you know, between the, the never ending COVID crisis, the increasing big thumb of government cracking down on how we must live. And, you know, we have to put the masks over our faces now. We have to get the mandatory vaccine, whether we want it or not, even if we've already had COVID, which is absurd. And you can't object. There aren't exceptions for things like that. There's no reasonable person to whom one can appeal. Right. I had Rand Paul on yesterday. He was like, fight, resist. Well, how? How? My kids got to go to school. You know, I got to go in the grocery store. You know, it's I'd love to be one of those people who winds up on a videotape in Walmart, but the truth is it's not going to make that much of a difference. It hasn't thus far. Do you see all that stuff? You see what happened in Afghanistan, the loss of the 13 Marines, the increase of terror again, the 9-11 mark 20 years later, and we're still in danger. I don't know. Feel a sense of malaise and concern that we're not about to make a massive course correction. Yeah. Um, it, it, and I wasn't around in uh, the Jimmy Carter area, era, era, but a lot of people... Uh, draw an analogy to that. And uh, it seems accurate. There does this seem to be this malaise, this sense that we're just going in the wrong, wrong direction. And what's very frustrating about it is in order to reverse that direction, Biden has to just stop doing things, just right. stop taking actions. Go back to the uh, basement. I mean, you love it there. Yeah, you liked it. You can go back to Delaware. Go ahead and reverse all of the nonsense that you've done over the last seven months, please bring us back to the status quo because we were doing fine. Uh, America was coming back on track. I mean, you think what you will about Donald Trump, the policies do work. And these policies are just very generic Republican establishment yeah. policies. Right. They like, ignore the tweets been. and look at the yeah. policy and see how it's working policies. out. These things work. All right. It doesn't create the utopia that the left desires. And see, this is this is where this is where you get into trouble. Well, the left gets into trouble because they're utopianists fundamentally. And they believe that it's always more action that is needed. And we will make people be who we think they should be. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's people who take vaccines or whether it's people who pay more in taxes or do more things, whatever it is, they want you to be something. They want to mold you. And they're willing to they're willing to exert government control to enforce that. And it always backfires because they always ignore the second, third order consequences of all of these actions. Again, whatever these actions are, whether it's in foreign policy or economics or public health, they ignore these second, third order consequences. This is why liberalism is a disaster of a governing philosophy. Uh, not because you know, there isn't some, and look, there, there's some things we should listen to liberals on. Like they, they have an extra sense of compassion, right? They, they think people should have healthcare and access to it. I, I like that as well, but I have a different way of doing it that is more sustainable and takes into account second, third order consequences, takes into account the limiting principles of governing in a way that liberals just never will. Um, so I, I don't mean to wane philosophical too much on this on this subject, but well, I like I like ending a on a of sort of note of unity. <laughs> yeah. Sort of, but we'll take what we can get. Sort Listen, of. I'm thinking about you and everyone who served on behalf of the country. Thank you for your service, and I'll see you very soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Megan. All the best, Dan. We'd love to know what you think uh, on Congressman Crenshaw's remarks. On where we are now, 20 20 years later, are we safer? Are we less safe as a result of the Afghanistan withdrawal right now than we were on September 10th, 2001? 
Give us a call. 833. We're taking your calls right after this break. So call right now. 833-44-MEGYN. 833-446-3496. Attention. If you owe the IRS, this is an important announcement. COVID relief is over and the IRS is ramping up like never before, sending out millions of collection letters to start 2024. Do you owe $10,000 or more or have unfiled returns? Now is the time to act. The IRS can garnish your wages, seize your property, and they can even take your home or your business. Don't let the IRS take advantage of you. It's time to call Tax Network USA. Their team of experienced tax lawyers has already saved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients. They know how to negotiate with the IRS and can help you too. Visit TNUSA.com or call 1-800-245-6000. Again, that's 1-800-245-6000. Don't wait until it's too late. Take control of your tax situation today with Tax Network USA. 1-800-245-6000. Call now. Welcome back, everyone, to the Megan Kelly Show. Here's what I'd love to know. If you are unvaccinated, are you going to do it now that Biden's going to make your boss make you get it right? Is that convincing you? I mean, you don't want to lose your job. So what are you going to do? Call me 833-44-MEGYN. That's 833-446-3496. By the way, you can also submit questions anytime via email at questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. And that's where we get our first question from. We're going to get to the callers in one second. Steve Krakauer is our executive producer and is bringing us one of our email questions just to kick things off. Hey, Steve. Hey, Megan. Yes, this one comes to us from JC, and she sent us this email before Biden's speech yesterday. So we'll see if that changes the equation. But she is a part-time college student. She's also an office manager in an office that, just based on how she described it, probably has less than 100 employees. So maybe she's not under the new mandate. She has a boss who's telling her that she has to get vaccinated. The only exceptions are for religious or medical. She does not want to do that. And she wants to know any advice. She said, should I cave for doing this job that I love? Or should I hold true to my principles? JC, I feel you. I wish I had a clear answer. I, I don't. I, I'm, I've been asking my same guests, my, my, my guests these past few days, that same question. I feel it too. You know, I don't know what my, my school is saying. I've got to vaccinate. We've got to vaccinate our child who turns 12 in September um, or else. And if if he's 16 and they only put the mark at 16 because that's the, where they've given the permanent approval for Pfizer um, and we don't do it, he's expelled. <laughs> well, I don't I don't want to. I don't I got the vaccine. I don't know about my son. I, he's too young. It's too untested. So I understand exactly how you're feeling. Um, I think it is a little different with grownups because the they've done more testing on the adult vaccine and I have fewer concerns about its safety. So, look, I know that some people sort of stir the pot. I mean, frankly, there are shit stirrers who really stir the pot a lot and get you really worried about the vaccines. And I think if you go too far down those Internet rabbit holes, I do think you can get misled. So be careful about I don't know if I'd give up my job over this, you know, as, a, as an adult. I just don't I don't think I'd do it. But I can't tell you what to do because I know not everybody feels the way I do about the vaccines. I think if I were in your position, I'd get it. But I respect your struggle, you know, because I'm feeling similar to you when it comes to the vaccines. Let's get to our callers who are waiting so patiently. Um, let's go to Vicky. I'm figured out how to do it myself. You guys I don't have to ask my team. Vicky, North Carolina. How you doing? And what's your question? I'm doing good. And I hope you are, too. Doing um, great. Thank I you. do have uh, the, the question that I was going to ask you. 
uh, let me preface it by saying I am not vaccinated and I don't intend to be vaccinated. And I hope that every, I just would hope that every single person in this country who does not want to be vaccinated will stand up and say, no, Mm -hmm. take my job, go ahead, because you won't find the millions who don't do it. You won't find anyone for their job. What are they going to do? Fine everybody, put them all in jail. At some point, Americans need to stand up and say, no, you know what? I've had enough. I've I've had it. it. Let me ask you a follow up question. Does it I listened to him yesterday. I felt angry, angry that he thought he had the power to do this to everybody. Furious. Furious that, you know what? Why does he want unvaccinated people to be hated? Why is he fomenting this division and this hatred? It's pure hatred and anger. I I swear to God, I'm scared now ever for anyone to know that I'm unvaccinated because the violence and the hatred that come out and and he foments it. I don't I don't understand why. Why do you do that? He better watch it because uh, it's it's not going to end well. Uh, He's got to tone down the rhetoric. Are we okay? How much time do we have left? I'm going to make sure. 30 seconds. Oh, all right. Listen. We're going to get more calls in tomorrow. I can see the board lighting up. I'm going to kick Steve out of this segment so I can get to more listener calls. <laughs> we had to yell at him a little bit. <laughs> it wasn't his fault. I don't know whose fault it was. We'll figure it out. What? There were no problems. Listen, thanks for joining us today in our first week on SiriusXM. Um, hope you stay tuned. And you can listen to the show later via podcast or you can watch us on YouTube if you so desire. And um, hope you'll continue to tuning up us into us, even though we're having some, some very small technical difficulties. So. Have a great weekend.